0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be with you on this crisp October morning. And we greet those of you who are joining us online as well. I hope you have a warm beverage where you're watching. It's delightful to be here. We are in week two of a series called Hero's Journey. Hero's Journey is a simple way of referring to every good story and what it's about. And the, simple, the simplified structure of it is that there's a call there is a challenge and there is a completion the completion being the victory the the transformation the the sharing of gifts and we are all on our own, you know, kind of hero's journey, and, but for, specifically for the month of October, we're going to look at the call aspect of hero's journey, and to do so, we're going to look at different characters within the Bible. But first, I want to um, have us consider three characters, one, uh, Bilbo Baggins, Katniss Everdeen, and Moses they all have something in common. All something in common beyond simply being the protagonist of their respective sagas, The Hobbit, The Hunger Games, and The Pentateuch. Each of them fit a specific archetype in literature. Each of them could be considered reluctant heroes. A reluctant hero is a hero who recognizes a need, they recognize that there's an injustice to fight, and a, a people to rescue, but they are hesitant to take up the mantle of the hero. They perhaps don't feel that they are the right ones for it. They don't feel equipped. Perhaps, you know, certainly there is somebody else. You know, for Bilbo Baggins, he wasn't exactly excited about the prospect of joining these strange dwarves who randomly show up at his door to help them go recover their stolen treasure from a dragon. No, he preferred his quiet life in the Shire, his peaceful evenings of tea and his pipe, not quite up for an adventure. Katniss Everdeen was more than happy to sacrificially volunteer as tribute to spare her younger sister from a nearly certain death in the 74th Annual Hunger Games. But she was less than keen on taking up this role of the Mockingjay, this symbol, this face of this revolution that would go on to overthrow this tyrannical government of a place called Panem. But the reluctant hero we will look at today, of course, is Moses. And before we get into the reluctance of Moses, and as we go, we'll kind of even examine our own reluctance to the different calls of our lives. But before we do that, I think it's good if we place, locate the story of Moses in the broader story of Scripture and then to remind ourselves and review some of the background story to him. So um, the story of the Bible it begins, we learn that God is creator, but we also learn that God is someone who is interested in partnership. That as God creates humans in his own image, he creates them to rule and subdue the earth, to represent his rule, to partner and rule along with him. Theologians often word it this way that their task was to expand the borders of Eden. You know, creation was not a completed project, humanity was to come and to put the finishing touches on it. Expand the borders and make the whole world. Eden, a whole world where God was known, served, and worshipped. However, we know that because of sin and rebellion, this project, this, this idea, this, it goes off track. Humanity, in essence, rejects their call. But God was not satisfied to leave things this way, and so he initiates redemption, but to do so, once again, he forms a partnership And last week, Mike talked about Abraham. God calls Abraham, and he says to Abraham that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. The implications there are that somehow, humanity and Abraham's family is going to partner with God with this redemption project of putting the earth back how God intended it to be. But as we approach the book of Exodus, we are met with this dramatic tension, a, a bit of a, a question. And that question is how will God bless the earth through Abraham's family and bless them in this own land that he promised to them if they are stuck enslaved in Egypt? Because Abraham's family now the size of a nation, these people of Israel, were in Egypt due to the circumstances of a famine. But as the years go by, this pharaoh, this king of Egypt, observes that these people are, you know, they're, they're multiplying rapidly and, and they're, perhaps they'll soon outnumber us. He says that if war breaks out, they may join our enemies and fight against us and leave. And that would have of course, bad economic implications. And so he says, let us deal shrewdly with them. That word, that that language there being the same language that describes the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was more shrewd, more crafty than the other animals. And so Pharaoh devises this serpentine plan of enslaving these people. But not only that, but he ordered that all Male boys born to the Hebrews were to be tossed into the Nile River and killed, a bit of form of population control and also preventing future soldiers from fighting against him. But one day, a woman from the tribe of Levi gives birth to a young boy, and she sees that he is a fine child, and she refuses to do this thing that Pharaoh orders them to do, and so she keeps this child hidden for a time, which... As a parent of four kids, I think this is an amazing task that she did. How do you keep an infant? Because let's face it, babies make noise. I have no idea how she kept him hidden. But as time passed, it was to where she could no longer keep him hidden. And so she had to make a choice. And so she put Moses in the Nile, but safely. Safely, She put him in this waterproof basket of reeds. This language that talking about this basket of reeds is the same word used for Noah and his ark. So just as Noah was spared from the water of judgments in the ark, Moses too was spared from the water of judgment through this tiny little ark. And so she places it in the river near the bank and floats it down among the reeds. And his older sister follows it from a distance. And where, of course, does this baby's vessel land? But near Pharaoh's own daughter. And when Pharaoh's daughter hears this baby crying, she sends her servants to go and retrieve, and she says, this is one of the Hebrew slaves, uh, the ch- children, uh, the, a baby of one of the Hebrews. And she had compassion on him, and the, uh, Moses's older sister comes and says, would you like me to find a, a, a Hebrew woman to nurse him for you? And she says, yes, indeed, do that. And so Moses' sister goes and gets the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter actually pays her to nurse him. How about that? That works out kind of good, doesn't it? But after time, um, Pharaoh's daughter would take the child into her own house and raise him as her own son, and she named him Moses, saying, for I drew him out of the water. So Moses grows up as a prince of Egypt, getting an Egyptian education and growing up with the privileges of an Egyptian prince. Time goes by, Moses grows, and at the age of 40, he notices that there's um, an Egyptian slave master brutally beating one of the Hebrew slaves. And, And it appears that Moses, though he is a prince of Egypt, still has some sort of affinity and identification with the Hebrews. And so he looks both ways and he defends this Hebrew slave and ends up killing the Egyptian slave master. And so he hides the thing by burying the slave master in the sand. And later when he is Trying to break up a fight between two Hebrew slaves, the one who was in the wrong said, Who made you the judge over us? And what are you going to do? Are you going to kill us like you killed that slave master? And when Moses discovered that the thing was known, and that perhaps even Pharaoh knew and that Pharaoh would try to kill him, Moses fled to the desert in Midian. And so, Moses, his life is interesting. He, he lives to be, uh, I believe, 120 years old, but his life is evenly split into thirds, you know, 40 years each. For the first 40 years of his life, he was a prince of Egypt. But for the next 40 years, for ages 40 to 80, he would be this pariah. This outcast, acceptable neither to the Egyptians nor to the Hebrews, a a pariah, one who was in exile, one who fled to Midian. But here, as we read about the call of Moses, we would read about how he would spend the rest of his life from ages 80 to 120 as a prophet of God, one who would speak for God. So Moses as prince, pariah, and prophet. The alliteration means that he lived an inspired life indeed, right? That's how it works, right? So Moses is tending sheep on the far side of the desert and where he comes to Mount Horeb where he notices something strange in the distance, a bush that was burning. But it was burning for quite a while and every time he looked at it, over time, it was still burning. Usually things burn up after a while and they just start to just smoke a little bit, but they don't keep blazing as as fire. So he goes to see what's going on here. And this is where he first encounters God, where God says, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals for you are standing on holy ground. And here in Exodus chapter 3, God explains to Moses that he has heard the cries of his people and that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that the cries of his people have come up to him, and he has plans to liberate them, but he was going to do so through Moses, that Moses was to go before him and to speak to Pharaoh, to tell him, let my people go, that they may go to the desert and serve me. Well, Moses has questions. And that brings us to our reading today. And that is, Exodus chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 1 through 17. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me, and they say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took, it and, and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they might believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. And so Moses put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. And if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become like blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Oh Lord, please send somebody else to do it. And the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you. And his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. And it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so that you can perform miraculous signs with it. So God here once again is partnering with somebody to accomplish his purposes. His purposes of not only leading Israel out of slavery, but leading them to the land that he had promised to them. But here, Moses has questions, and they're they're legitimate questions. Moses says, you know, what if they don't believe me? What if they say God did not appear to you? And it's a fair question because after all, if, if Moses shows up, after 40 years, and says, Hi, it's me, Moses. I don't know if you remember me, but I've been in the desert for 40 years, and I heard from the God of your fathers. He spoke to me through a burning bush. If you're enslaved in Egypt and you hear that, are you immediately like, really? We shouldn't believe everyone who says that they've heard from God or that God spoke to them. That's how cults get started. But in today, we have God's Word, and we can, whenever we hear from somebody that God has spoken to me, we can, we can test it, right? We have the Spirit, and we can use discernment. But we shouldn't simply, at first, without question, simply believe everyone who says, God told me. But God gave signs to Moses to demonstrate for them so that they would know that his his message is authenticated. So he says, what's in your hand? His staff. He throws the staff down and it becomes a serpent. Now, it's interesting, this. I mean, it could have been any animal. Why a serpent? In the Hebrew, nahash. The same word used in Genesis 3 for the serpent in the garden, nahash. I wonder if God's communicating something. People who read, um, you know, know, Egyptologists are aware of this kind of spell that people could do in Egypt where they could kind of hypnotize a snake to the point that it would become so stiff that it would become like a staff. I wonder if God here is responding to that and kind of one-upping it a bit because it's one form of power to form, you know, to take life, to, to make it seem lifeless, it's another thing to take something lifeless and to give it life. But I also wonder if the message here is similar to perhaps a message that could be given from Genesis 3 where God could say, you need to trust what I say. You don't need to fear the serpent. You need to trust what I say and don't let the serpent rule over your life because Moses here. Ran from the serpent. He was afraid of it. God told him to take hold of it and to rule over it. So God gives him the sign of the staff. He gives him the whole, you know, hand leprous, hand not leprous. And he says, if they don't like these, pour some water of the Nile and it will turn into blood on the ground. So God answers that. Here, Moses has this Question that deals with the external. Moses' question is is about other people and what they might think. But then later on, Moses makes another point, but it's less about the external, but more about the internal. It's about something within himself where he says, Look, I'm not eloquent. (laughs) I'm not eloquent. And and he recognizes that, Look, if I'm going to go to the halls, the, the courts of Pharaoh, right? If I'm here on this kind of diplomatic mission, this kind of politically diplomatic mission, I got to get this right. And after all, if you have somebody representing your nation, you don't want them stumbling over their words. And so Moses points out, I'm not eloquent. I don't think you want to send me. I'm the kind of guy who stumbles over his words. But the Lord responds, Who made man's mouth? Who made man's mouth? I will be with you. I will help you with it. I will teach you what to say. And in both instances, with the sign and with this, the way that the Lord responded to Moses here, it's as if God is telling Moses, look, I'm the one doing the heavy lifting here. You just have to go and be faithful. It's not about your ability. It's about your availability. I will equip you and I will be with you. But in spite of God answering Moses' external question as well as his internal question, Moses still responds, please, Lord, send someone else. He's out of excuses. You know, what is this? What is, what is behind this reluctance? Well, we're not told specifically. You know, the Bible does not let us into Moses' inner monologue or the motivations of his heart. But I do think, as fellow human beings, recognizing our own tendencies, we could probably make an educated guess. You know, what are the things that make us reluctant? Um, and if we could pull up the iPad here, I'm going to make a proposal. I wonder if our reluctance is based on a number of fears that we have. And these fears are connected to some very basic things about our existence. And we've spoken about these things in the past. And what I want to talk about now are the basic things of life of approval, ambition, And appetite. These things have always been with us. They are a part of God's good creation, so they're not inherently bad. In the beginning we had God's approval. You know, God as the capstone of God's creation, God said that it was very good, and we are part of that very good creation. With ambition, God tells us to rule the world and subdue it, right? Expand the borders of Eden. That's a goal. That's something to do. That's an ambition. And God also satisfies our appetite. He says, behold, I give you every seed-bearing plant. These are all part of God's good creation. But what happens very often in this fallen world is that these things become ultimate things. These things become ruling things, they get turned sideways, and our enemy tempts us to use these things at times, in ways, or in degrees that God did not intend for us to use these things. In fact, these are the very things that Satan uses to tempt Jesus in the desert, right? If you are the Son of God, turn these stones to bread, appetite. Appetite hey, if you're really the one, go fling yourself off the temple. We all know you'll land safely. And when, the, and when the religious leaders and the Jewish worshipers see you do that, they'll really like you. Approval. Bow to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's ambition. We're all tempted by by each of these things. And I wonder if there are fears connected to these things that have something to do with our reluctance and perhaps even the reluctance of Moses. So when it comes to approval, I think one fear that makes us reluctant to pursue a call is the fear of man. The Bible says the fear of man is a snare. The fear of man, It. we are created in such a way that it's good. We, we, we have a natural tendency. We want people to like us, and that's good. We want to have good relationships where we get along and people like us, people love us. We want favor from the people who are in authority over us. But it's when that, when that desire becomes this insatiable hunger, when that becomes this insatiable hunger, this unquenchable kind of lust for applause and honor. And status approval becomes a ruling thing and our life becomes ruled by the fear of man where we long for their approval and we fear their disapproval and that'll lead to all sorts of compromise in our life where that becomes the ultimate thing and I can't help but wonder though it was a legitimate question from Moses when he says what if they don't believe me no the Lord did not appear to you I wonder if behind that is not only will they not believe me, but they're going to laugh me out of the room. Who wants to walk into a situation where they're going to be insulted and, you know, ostracized like that? So the fear of man. But the belief behind the fear of man is the belief that the opinions of our fellow human beings, other people who are flesh just like us, who depend on oxygen just like us, who were born without a stitch of clothing on their body just like us, and who will one day die just like us, we believe that those people, the opinion of them are, is more valuable and more precious and more beneficial to us than the opinion of the one who made us all. The one who... Said to Moses, My name is I am, I am the self existent one. The opinion of man above the opinion of Yahweh, that drives the fear of man. With ambition, the fear that might make us reluctant to pursue a call, a call is the fear of failure. The fear of failure, we want to be successful. We want to be successful at things. And the thing is, it's kind of related to the approval, where approval is about getting validation from other people. But ambition here can be about getting validation from your success and what you do. But what, does, what happens when you fail? If, if your success validates you, then that means your failure invalidates you. If I fail, it'll invalidate me. It'll prove that I'm a zero. It'll prove that I am weak. It'll prove that I'm not capable of anything. I don't want to put myself in positions where I fail. I want my work and, and all that I do to mean something. But if I fail, then what will I mean? What will my life mean? And I wonder if this perhaps is what is behind Moses saying to God, look, I'm not eloquent. I'm not capable. I am not equipped of doing the things that you are calling me to do. If I go, I will likely fail. And I don't want to put myself in a position where I will fail. And so what we believe, when we believe that we will fail when God calls us, we believe not only that we will fail, but perhaps we also believe that God has failed. In other words, you've made a mistake. You have called the wrong person. The thing we should recognize, though, is that if God does call us to something, and even if it appears that we have failed, it may be that there is something for you to learn and to grow from that apparent failure for the next calling. in the first song that we sang today, I don't remember the line exactly, but it says, "If it's if it's not good, it's not the end." And you know, Moses. You know, I wonder if this kind of came up with what happens after this, because when Moses eventually he first does, he goes to Pharaoh, <laughs> and he. And he says to him, you know, let my people go. And, and, and he shows him the whole thing with the staff and the snake. And Pharaoh's just not impressed. He's like, who is God? And how powerful is your God if, if his people are enslaved? And he says, you people have too much time on your hands. And so from now on, you can go gather your own straw. But you need to make the same amount of bricks. And so Moses walks away from this going, what was that? I was called to this. But you have not delivered your people at all. You have sent me up for failure. What Moses didn't know is that there was more to this story. And perhaps as we experience these calls in our life and we might be afraid of failure, one thing we might need to consider are, is how God has equipped us. And to consider some very important um, questions that are even asked in this passage. The first question is, God asked Moses, what is that in your hand? What has God already given to you? How has he already equipped you? I'm sure that Moses never would have imagined in his days as a shepherd that the, the very staff that was in his hand as he tended to his sheep would be much more than a staff, and it would lead to much greater things. What has God equipped you with? And the second question is, who's going with you? God says to Moses at the end, your brother Aaron, he speaks well, and he's coming. He'll be glad to see you. And so maybe the thing that God has called you for, you don't feel like you're entirely equipped to. I'm sure he's equipped you in some ways, but perhaps there are others who have gifts and have strengths where you are weak. Is there a partnership that God is calling you to? So fear of man, fear of failure could make us reluctant to follow up on a calling. But finally, connected to appetite, there's one more fear. I think so often the things that we desire in terms of appetite, the things that we have appetites for, we, we like them because they comfort us. They bring comfort to our lives. But the opposite of that, though, is I think we might have reluctance because of a fear of discomfort. We have a fear of the loss of comfort, a fear of a life that we once knew. You know, God says all these things to Moses. He answers all his questions, but still at the end, Moses says, Lord, please send somebody else. Another way of basically saying, look, I'm retired. I'm 80. (laughs) I'm 80 years old. I'm retired. You know, it could be that, you know, Moses was just content with his life in the shire. After 40 years as a shepherd, He had grown used to this this type of life and he was good with it. He wasn't looking for any new adventures. And when you think about it, he had already made a hard transition once before. At one time in his life, he was a prince of Egypt with all the privileges and the comforts of being a prince. And so imagine one day you go to bed as a king of Egypt or a prince of Egypt and the next night you're sleeping in the desert. So he's had to make an adjustment from from prince to shepherd and he's already made that transition and he's not ready to start a new life because he gets the sense that this thing God's calling him to is not going to be handled over the weekend, right? He's, He's being called to an entirely new life. And so for us, we might be reluctant because of a fear of discomfort, because we like our comfort. It might be that we have a sense that God is calling us to something, that he is calling us to be more intentional, investing in some discipleship kind of relationship. So that might require you giving up some of your evenings, giving up some of your nights of the week to invest in those types of relationships. But let's face it, that new recliner that you bought in Netflix is a seductive proposition. Comfort sings a siren tune. It may be that God is calling you to give more of your finances to kingdom work and kingdom purposes and to be generous, but you have grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle and a certain standard of living where you have certain products and certain subscriptions and you have to pick one or the other because you can't have both. It might be God is calling you to foster or adopt. That's going to change your life. That's gonna require giving up certain comforts. We like the comfort of being in control of our schedules and having wide margins within our schedule. And so sometimes we might be reluctant because of the, the discomforts or the inconveniences that some things might bring. So how is it that we overcome our reluctance due to the fear of man, the fear of failure, and the fear of discomfort. Well, I was um, having a conversation recently with with Marty. Uh, You might see Marty some days behind the camera, some days up in the booth. And she's part of the forum internship now. And she told me how she's always had a servant's heart, but the idea of Going on an international mission trip was never something on her radar. That it just you know, and never she never thought it would it would happen for her. But one day she was at her church, and they were talking about this mission trip to Brazil, and she she says I can't explain it, but something about it I I knew I just knew that God was calling me to it. I can't explain it any other way, but I knew that God wanted me to go to Brazil. And it was this kind of mission trip that where you would live on a boat sailing the Amazon and stopping at these little villages um, through through the river. But here's the thing: the thing about Marty is that she is tremendously allergic to mosquitoes. Like the way that people are allergic to bees, she's allergic to mosquitoes. Like It could be really dangerous. I don't know if you know much about the Amazon. They got some skeeters, right? She says they're like hummingbird-sized mosquitoes. Not literally, but they're big, right? And so, you know, she feels called, but she recognizes this risk. You know, she tells her doctor. He's like, no, you're crazy. Don't go or whatever, but she ends up going away. He gives her four EpiPens, But, but she goes. And indeed, she does get bit, but experiences no terrible effects, no need of any epipens, no, um, no apparent danger to herself. You know, and, and it was a life-changing trip for her. And so I asked her, like, what, what brought you to that point? Because you, you saw the risk, you know it was there, but what brought you to the point that you you decided to go? And she said, to the idea of not following God's call for my life and doing what God wanted me to do was way worse than anything that mosquitoes could do for me. That's called the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not this, oh no, God's gonna get me. The fear of the Lord is this joyful reverence and awe And a recognition that God is way more immense, way more powerful, way more great than anything else that you could be afraid of. And the result of the fear of the Lord is a rest and a peace that you are no longer comparing the the task of your call and the challenge of your call You're no longer comparing that to your own skills, your own talents, your own wisdom, and your own righteousness. But you are now comparing those things to God. And compared to God, those things shrink. So, the fear of the Lord can help us to overcome our reluctance to follow up with this call. And, and along with the fear of the Lord, we also recognize a number of things. And that is the presence of the Lord. In Exodus 3, God says to Moses, I will be with you. We also recognize the power of the Lord. You know, God demonstrates these things to Moses, this thing with the staff, the thing with his hand and all these things. And, and today, we have more revelation about the power of God than Moses did at the time. We know of way more things that God is able to do, things that we've experienced and things we've read about, things we've seen and heard. We know of way more that God can do than Moses did at the time. But there's one more thing we need. Because the presence of God and the power of God are of no use to us if we are enemies of God. We also need to know what is the posture of God towards us. And if we are his people and we belong to him, we know that his posture toward us is one of love and of care and of compassion. God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people that he has compassion for them and he was to deliver them from slavery and he has done the same for us as he has delivered us from slavery to sin because his posture toward us is one of love and care and compassion. Do you want to know how else we can know about God's posture toward us? Well, Moses said, please, Lord, he he appeals to God. He says, please, Lord, send somebody else. And Moses did this because he feared what might happen. But there was another shepherd prince who also made an appeal to God and said, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me but not as I will but what you will that's what Moses was missing and that makes all the difference here's what I want but it's not about my will it's about your will because for Moses if I go people might hate me but for Jesus if I go people will hate me for Moses It was, if I go, I might fail and I might die. For Jesus, it was, if I go and I succeed, I will die. For Moses, it was, if I go, I might experience discomfort. For Jesus, if I go, my discomfort is guaranteed. Moses was afraid of what might happen. Jesus was distressed because of what he knew would happen. And it's an interesting thing here because some have pointed out that many of Jesus' own followers faced death with, with much more peace and serenity than he did. What's with that? It's because none of them had to drink the cup. They had to face death, but they didn't have to drink the cup. The cup we learned from the Old Testament, the cup of wrath, the cup of judgment. Jesus knew he was going to experience something greater than death. And so here here he is, the eternal Son of God, who for all eternity had experienced close intimacy with the Father. He had experienced his Father's smile and his Father's pleasure, but he knew that he would soon be crying out, Why have you forsaken me? Now, I don't know that we can fully explain or fully wrap our heads around what exactly happens within the Trinity, within the Godhead in that moment. But for Jesus, what he experienced was beyond our comprehension. But he went anyway. And he did it for you. You are his prize. For Jesus, he went for the joy set before him because he knew that the heights and the sweetness of the completion would be worth the bitterness and the depths of the challenge. And that's how you can know his posture towards you. He loves you. He cares for you. and has compassion for you. And when you recognize that, that can strip away the reluctance to follow his call because if he loves you that much, then any call he has in your life, it's gonna be for your good. It might be painful, it might be full of challenges, but he's in a process of making you more like him. It's for your good. So as I end today, We want to once again, as always, invite a response as as the band comes up. You need to ask yourself what is it that God is calling me to? It may be something big, it may be something long term, or it may be something as simple as today, as getting on the phone and having a conversation that you've been putting off. It might be about forgiveness, it might be about reconciliation. What is God calling you to today? And what is making you reluctant? And maybe so you need to come today and to pray to recover a sense of awe of God. A-W-E, awe of God. Because we have allowed ourselves to be in awe of other things. And what you are ultimately in awe of will dictate the direction of your life. So today, as you want to follow the call of the Lord, maybe what you need first is to recover a sense of awe of the Lord. A sense that he loves you. And a sense that he is calling you for his purposes. So as the band plays, you come. The prayer team will come and to support you in prayer. But as as the band plays, you come.